0: You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O King, live forever. You, O King, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into, into a burning and <clears throat> fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the providence of ba- Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you, They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is the word of the Lord.
1: When I was five years old, I would spend the night periodically with my maternal grandmother in her house in Spokane, Washington. And one of the interesting things about her her house at that point is it had a two-ring front doorbell, and it had a one-ring back doorbell. And, uh, and so uh, I would have this game that I would play, and I'd go to the front doorbell, and I would ring it, ding-dong, and, uh, yeah, that's me with hair. I, I lost it when I was 10. Yeah. And then I would peek through the window, and I'd wait until I see my elderly grandmother get up out of her chair and, and head toward the front door, and then I'd run around, jump over the fence, and go to the back door, and I'd ring the back doorbell, ding, and then look through the window and tell. Aren't you glad I wasn't your grandson? <laughs> and so I'd have, you know, uh, hours of fun playing this, this game. And you just need to know I did it for my grandmother's health. <laughs> I, I wanted to make sure she'd get her steps in. And um, I want to be humble about it, but I, I, I think uh, she lived well into her 90s because I helped her with her cardio. I, I, I did what I could to bless my family growing up. My, my grandma was a powerful woman of, of prayer, and uh, I, I think my life literally was saved many times doing the stupid stuff that I did growing up, as I, you well could imagine, uh, because of the prayers of my grandma and then her daughter, my, my mom. And uh, I believe with all my heart, so do my six siblings, that a praying mother is a huge advantage in life. Uh, my grandma walked closely to Jesus, she did. She couldn't cook worth a lick, though. <laughs> the, a vivid memory when I was five is the worst pancakes I've had in my life were, were with my grandmother. But, but she could move mountains in prayer, and so I honor her and I honor my mom. They're both gone now. Um, a very vivid memory is, is one night I was staying with my grandma and, and uh, was, was sleeping in the bed with her, and I had a vision. I, I really did, um, and I I haven't had many experiences like that in my life, but that was very vivid. It was uh, a vision of, of of Christ, of Jesus, and uh, I I remember vividly the the feelings of just incredible joy and, and peace, and I don't really know how to describe it, to be frank with you, other than to say it was just amazing, and then, and then it, it just it just faded, and when it faded, it was like, no, don't, don't go away. It was a powerful, powerful experience. I've thought about that many times in my life, and, and frankly, that kept me from doing some really stupid things growing up, because I couldn't get away from the reality of that, even when I wanted to, in my teen years. Um... But I don't think it's, thinking about that experience, um, I don't think it was a coincidence that it happened when I, was, when I was with my grandmother, who was a very godly person. And my experience has been subsequently in life that it's, it's amazing the, the things that happen when you are close to someone who truly walks humbly with God. There's just, there's just things that, that take place. There's uh, peace that uh, this world can't give, wisdom, uh, God's favor that happens when we're with someone like that. And that's what we see in the book of Daniel, just the amazing stories in the book of Daniel, which I so love. These are, are four teenagers who walk closely with Almighty God, and you could see it. Here in Daniel chapter 3, uh, the big point is this, that Jesus is with us in the fire. And in this scripture, there's four major characters. And so we're going to look at each one of those characters and then apply the lesson to our lives. The first is who I call Mr. Big Shot, King Nebuchadnezzar. And those are, uh, in the first seven verses, King Nebuchadnezzar, he made this image of gold. It's 90 feet high. He told everyone to bow down before it. Uh, verse four, or there, you're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And he did this. I I, I wonder if he was in, inspired. His ego was puffed up. You remember last week he had the image of the statue, and Daniel told him you were the head of gold. And I wonder if that's what inspired him. His ego just got out of control and inspired him to make this 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 huge uh, uh, idol and have everyone bow down before it. You remember the adage, the famous adage, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's why wise governments have uh, checks and balances, wise organizations do. And King Nebuchadnezzar, I think you make a very strong argument from overall the the book of Daniel, not just in chapter 3, that he was a narcissist. You remember the Greek myth of Narcissus, who was the most handsome a uh, man in the world, and he fell in love with his image in a still pond of water, and and uh, literally uh, died just staring at his image. And it's and so narcissism is about someone who thinks they're all that in a bag of chips, so to speak. And so we see Nebuchadnezzar as this person who's just so filled with himself that everyone bow down to the image which symbolizes me because I'm the head of gold. And uh, he was Mr. Big Shot. Which reminds me of a Saturday Night Live skit with actress Kristen Wiig. And she plays a narcissist, Penelope. And in this skit, she always has to be the best. She always has to one-up everybody. She always has to have the, the spotlight on her. And it absolutely irritates everyone around her. And she doesn't notice it. So, for instance, if she's at a party, she has to say that she's been to all the best parties in the town... And when a guest mentions that the host that they've known the hostess for six months, she has to say she's known them for seven years. And she's again oblivious to how everybody is just getting irritated by her self-centered behavior. But eventually a guy in the skit on Saturday Night Live has a couple of beers and it loosens him up. And finally he says this, Hey Penelope, guess what? I have a cousin who lives in space and recently lost 500 pounds. And you know what? My wife and I got here by paddling a kayak down the street, and two minutes after my baby was born, she spoke French. <laughs> so in this, in this skit... Without batting an eye, Penelope responds with, you know, just the typical narcissist. Well, all I have to say is I have 60 cousins who live in space and other dimensions, and um, I lost 700 pounds, and um, I invented kayaks, and um, I have six babies now who spoke 44 languages before they came out of my stomach. (laughs) Crazy stuff. But this reminds us to beware of pride and arrogance. Slipping into our minds, and then our attitudes, and then our words, and then into our behavior. It's very interesting that three times in the Bible, in Proverbs 3.34, James 4.6, and then in 1 Peter 5.5, 5, it says that God opposes the proud, but he gives his grace, his favor, his help to the humble. And so the first lesson is, don't be Mr. Big Shot, Don't get too big for your britches, as my dad would say. The second character in Daniel 3 is the jealous co-workers. And you can look down uh, starting in in verse 8 there. And then uh, at a certain time, certain Chaldeans came forward. They were the intelligentsia of Babylon. The Chaldeans were the predecessors to the three wise men from the east who came to to give gifts to Jesus because they saw the star, and so there was uh, astrology and astronomy going up. And so they maliciously accused the the Jews, and they declared to Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the band strike up the music must worship the gold image. Whoever does not has to be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And then notice they pull out the race card there, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the, Bab, of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, using Hananiah, Meshach, and Azariah's uh, Babylonian names, pagan names right there. And, and then they, they, they then mix uh, truth with lies, with what they say, uh, these men, O oh, king, pay no attention to you. That's a lie. That wasn't true. But then here's the truth. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You know, the most powerful lies are ones that are half-truths, isn't it? And so these, are, these characters are who I call the jealous co-workers. You remember last week, these very guys, the Chaldeans, were supposed to be beheaded because they couldn't tell Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was and the interpretation of the dream. And Daniel and the guys prayed and the Lord delivered them. And so they, these Chaldeans, they owed their life. To these guys, but their jealousy was so powerful that they weren't grateful, and jealousy is such a destructive spiritual virus. You remember the Bible teaches that the archangel Lucifer, who became Satan, was proud like Mr. Big Shot. Then he was jealous of God. He wanted God's glory. He wanted to be God, and so he was jealous like the co-workers here in Daniel chapter 3, and that was his downfall, was his pride and his jealousy. You remember the movie Uh, amadeus antonio uh, salieri is jealous of mozart's incredible music talent and so it eventually leads him to murder and suicide and it just talks about the destructive nature of jealousy in the play othello uh, shakespeare calls jealousy the green-eyed monster which destroys a person's peace of mind and their relationships And so, uh, there was a Wall Street Journal article entitled, Sibling Rivalry Grows Up. It's about two brothers who grew up in New York City. And uh, in the article, they report that research shows 45% of adult siblings have relationships marked by rivalry and distance and jealousy. So the article goes on to tell the story of 85-year-old Al Golden, who still chokes up talking about uh, his recently deceased twin brother, Elliot. The brothers shared a room growing up in, in Brooklyn. They graduated from the same college. They got married within months of one another. They were close. But over the years, slowly jealousy began to erode their brotherly love for one another. Elliot Gold, Golden uh, became a lawyer and a New York State Supreme Court judge, and it galled him that his brother Al, who didn't have his level of, of, uh, of education and sophistication and such a prestigious position, that Al, who had a business selling, of all things, mirrors, made more money than he did, and that bothered him. You remember that Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth does speak. And so one day, full of jealousy in his heart, Elliot accused Al of not doing his fair share to take care of their elderly mother. And Al was deeply offended, and he didn't speak to his brother for over a year. Then one day, Al received an email from Elliot. There was a story of two men who shared properties on either side of, of a stream, and how one person decided to hire a carpenter and to build a fence, but the carpenter made a mistake and instead built a bridge. And the story was a worm in Al's mind. He couldn't shake, and eventually Al wrote back, I'd like to walk over that bridge. And they were reconciled. Friends, I think the, the moral of that story is this, that jealousy builds fences, but love builds bridges. So how can we avoid jealousy? Here's, here's three thoughts to consider. Number one, be genuine, genuinely happy for others when they prosper. Be genuinely happy for others when they prosper. Replace jealousy with with genuine goodwill and love. Number two, be content with what you have. Choose happiness today with the reality of life rather than someday when I get something, I'll then be happy. Be content with what you have. Number three, don't compare your life with others. Stay focused on your life. The core of jealousy, I believe, is breaking the 10th commandment, Thou shalt not covet. When we want what another person has and then we resent that they have it instead of us, jealousy takes root in our hearts. But to live a blessed life, a life of peace, a life of joy, we need to keep our hearts free of jealousy. The third character in verses 16 through 18 in Daniel chapter 3 are the mature, healthy teen boys. And oh my goodness, this morning, um, Josh, who's the name of the, the, how old is he? How old's Josh? How old? Oh, there you are. You're, you're 12. No, you're not. Talk about a mature, mature, Way, well done, young man. And I love the cowboy hat. Just don't chew. Don't ever chew, okay? <laughs> Wear the hat, but don't, don't, don't chew. Trust me. <laughs> um, verse 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, These are teenagers. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Isn't that amazing? Their maturity. God is able to deliver us. That's nothing for him. Our God is much greater than the fiery furnace And we hope God will deliver us. But if God does not deliver us, we're not going to bow down to your silly idol. That is nothing in comparison to the living God that we serve. We're just not going to do that. If it costs us our life, then then so be it. It reminds me of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prayed, prayed, Father, uh, please remove this cup of suffering from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done i 've given a lot of thought over the years on how to raise uh, mature, healthy teenagers because uh, Colleen and I had three of them back in the day, and so I had a lot vested in that and uh, one of my kids is here, my eldest uh, daniel is is here and i 'm so glad he is i 'm so proud of him. But when I think about raising a teen, I think about my dad's example. Um, and I'll talk more about him some other time. And, and I just want to say this. There are no perfect parents and there are no perfect teens. Let's just get that out of our mind. That, that's why the gospel is about grace. God gives us grace. Without grace, I, I would not be standing here. And, and I'm sure you believe that. Yet there's wise things in the midst of of, of saying there is no... Uh, perfect parent, a perfect team, there's, there's wise things we can learn from Scripture that can give us the best odds of raising a mature, healthy teen. So so here's a, a few thoughts that I think are backed up by Scripture and, and good experience and from my dad's example. The first one i say is this, is stay connected. Love is the foundation. If, if, if you begin to have disconnect from your teens, as you well know, um, that's when things get scary. And the, the second thing is pray daily. Uh, we can't do it without God's active help. Uh, they're not with us all the time, and, but God can be with them. The third one I would say is model the path. You don't need to be perfect, but don't be a hypocrite. And so if you make a mistake, make it right. And if they know about it, go confess it. You know, uh, put your pride to the side, model the path. And then mentor in other words, do life with them and then debrief and discuss. Don't lecture, discuss it. And so you both can learn because um, you can learn from them as well as they can learn from you. The, the next one is a favorite of mine is, is give grace. And I'd say love them on their worst day. And forgive and don't hold grudges. Have high standards but not perfectionism. Give grace. This is very important. Empower them. They, they can't become an adult unless they ride their own horse. I believe that with all my heart. Coley and I driving up, and what a, isn't it great to see the mountains? And what a great location Rockland has. Aren't, aren't you guys blessed? Aren't we blessed to have the church here? And we, we were driving up, and we were reminiscing about teaching our kids to drive and how stressful that was. And I said, no offense, Daniel, but I used you as an example driving up, because that, that, he was my first one, that, that when we would drive near Belmar in the, in the minivan, we had five minivans in a row, the, the, the most unsexy car you can have, but we had them, and uh, and just, just changing lanes when he would uh, switch lanes as a 16-year-old, my gut would just tighten up. And uh, I'm sure my dad felt the same thing because I can't confirm or deny that I might have had three fender benders before I got my license. Uh, yeah, So, but you have to empower them. You have to allow them to risk. You have to, I, I, think, I think one of the things that, that really doesn't work in raising teens is, is treat them like children. That's what a bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah is about is Jewish theology is you're a child until you're 12, and then you become an adult. And uh, allow them, that gives back to grace that they're inexperienced adult, and so they'll make mistakes, but didn't you make mistakes? Didn't I make mistakes? And, but the only way to make it through life is, is to be empowered, and uh, to ride our own horse, and you get bucked off, and it hurts, but boy, you learn a lesson, and it really goes with you. Last one would be this, consecrate consecrate your life, consecrate your kids and your family 100% into God's hands. Don't hold back on that. Consecrate your family to the Lord. God is faithful. So we see in this scripture, we're just it's amazing, Hananiah, Meshach, and, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were mature, healthy teenage men. And this was rooted in their 100% commitment to the Lord, to Yahweh, the scripture makes it clear how important that is. In Romans 12, 1, it says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of his gospel of grace, which is what uh, uh, Romans 1 through 11 has been about, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then Colossians chapter 3 says this, since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. But if not, O king, we will not bow the knee to your idol. Amazing. Then the fourth and most important character in Daniel chapter 3 is our great and good God, Look down at verse 24. So they're thrown into the furnace. It, it's, it's heated up so much that, that the soldiers throwing them in are overcome and killed by it. They're thrown into it, bound in, and with their robes on. And then in verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered in verse 25, but I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. This is what theologians call a theophany or a Christophany, which is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus, the eternal son of God. It's interesting that Dr. Michael Heiser, who has a PhD in in, in Hebrew and, and ancient Semitic languages, uh, tells us that the ancient Jewish theology, prior to Christianity, they had to change it because Jesus was a big problem with this theology, but the ancient Jewish theology acknowledged from the Old Testament Scripture that it was clear that there were two Yahwehs, Yahweh being the, the, the name, I am who I am, of, of God, There were two Yahwehs: the invisible Yahweh in the heavenly realms and the appearance periodically in the Old Testament, as we see here, the force looks like the Son of God, the appearance of a physical Yahweh on earth. I'll just give you one example outside of Daniel chapter 3. In Genesis 32, Jacob is alone, and he's, he's nervous, he's having fitful sleep because in the morning he's going to have to face his estranged brother Esau and he's worried that Esau's going to kill him and kill his family. And uh, then a man appears in Genesis chapter 32 and begins wrestling with Jacob. Jacob will not tap out, and neither will the other man, so they wrestle all night. And Jacob says he won't go until the man blesses him. In response, the man changes his name from Jacob, meaning supplanter, overthrower, or underminer, to Israel. Wrestles he who wrestles with God. Very interesting. Then the man disappears, and then Jacob says an interesting thing in verse 30. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Jacob wrestled with Jesus all night. Wrestling with God is a good thing because first of all, if you're wrestling, it means you're connected. You can't be wrestling if you're not connected. So it means that we're connected with God. And then it means that we won't let go until He blesses us. I believe the scriptures teaches that God blesses people who wrestle with Him in prayer. And so here in Daniel 3, King Nebuchadnezzar says this amazing thing in verse 25. Did we not throw three men into the fire? Into the fire? Look, I see four men walking around, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. So here's the big idea for us from Daniel chapter 3. Jesus is with us in the fire. When we're in the fire, it's vital to remember who God is, and what God has promised us. In Psalm 34, 18, God promises this. God is near to the brokenhearted. God cares. God is faithful. God will never leave us or forsake us. Isaiah 40, 25 and 26 talks about space and stars. And God says this, "'To whom will you compare me? "'Who is my equal?' says the Holy One. "'Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens, to "'what we call space. "'Who created all these stars?' He who brings out the starry host one by one, billions upon billions of them, and calls them each by name, because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. God is all powerful. God is all wise. Nothing is impossible with God. And then in Second Corinthians one three, it says this about our God. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles. God is with us in the trauma of life. God is the comforter for our broken hearts. So we draw near to God because he loves us. He cares and he can help. A Jesus follower who knew trauma was the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 25-27, Paul wrote this, "...five times I received 39 lashes of the whip. Three times I was beaten by rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and a night in the open sea. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food." Paul understood trauma. But he also understood God, and he also understood that Jesus was with him in the fire. In 2 Timothy 2, 16 and 17, Paul wrote this, Everyone deserted me, may it not be held against them, but the Lord stood by my side and gave me strength. In trauma, people may fail us, our friends and family may fail us, The government may fail us, but Jesus never fails. Jesus is always faithful. Jesus is with us through the fire. Justin Rand grew up in a rough neighborhood in Texas without uh, parents that really cared about him. They had addiction problems. And so at 13, Justin was diagnosed with clinical depression what kept him from suicide was he had a real gift for wrestling was was a state champion high school wrestler and was invited to the olympic training center and so his goal became to get to the olympics and 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 win a medal but in a match at the training center with the world champion his elbow was severely broken he was given painkillers and he became a addu- uh, 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 addicted to the painkillers and uh... he gave up his olympic dream and and uh, turned to mixed martial arts, where his career began to take off, but so did his addictions. He added alcohol and cocaine to his pill addiction, and his career in MMA came to a screeching halt when he was kicked off of his training team due to his out-of-control, addicted behavior. Then a friend invited him to a men's weekend retreat, where for the first time, Justin heard men openly share their stories of struggle and for the first time heard the the good news of Jesus Christ. And he yearned to have the peace and the joy and the freedom that he saw in other men's lives in his life. So he prayed, God, I'm a drunk and a drug addict. I'm a liar and a cheater. God, I've hurt everybody. I don't want to hurt anybody anymore. I desperately need you in my life. As Justin prayed this prayer, a cloud Lifted from his soul. For the first time in his life, he felt free and he gladly committed his life 100% to God. Then Justin had a strange vision where he saw people living in mud huts and their kids were malnourished. So he told it to his mentor, Caleb. And Caleb said, I think I know what that means. And so they went on a mission trip to a pygmy tribe in the Congo that Caleb was connected to in his ministry. Justin fell in love with his tribe. The picture shows him with one of the members of the tribe. And so he founded a nonprofit to serve their needs. And Justin had found peace. And he said, I'm no longer fighting my inner demons. I'm fighting to fulfill God's call in my life. Friends, God desires for your heart to have his peace and your life to have his purpose like Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah.